Hello again, everybody. It's Thomas Buher, and I'm pretty excited to start this series going through Herman Bavink's book, The Christian Family. Um, there's a lot of reasons uh, why I'm eager to do this. Uh, one is simply that I get a chance to read this book with my wife. We get to discuss it. And then out of those thoughts that we have, uh, I get to share what I think with you guys, whoever chooses to listen to this. And the topic itself, the Christian family, um, is so very important. Uh, I am a Calvinist. I am Reformed. I am Covenantal. I am Presbyterian. Um, I believe that to be good, you know, labels rightly understood for uh, Christianity and, and its best expression and what the Bible actually teaches and so on and so forth. So the sovereignty of God and predestination and election um, are things that I hold to very tightly and uh, I think if you if you don't believe in predestination and election and the sovereignty of God uh, and the unity of Scripture uh, and the covenant of grace and so on and so forth um, well, I think you're missing a lot, but this, I have really come to believe, is even more fundamentally important, and in some ways, it's kind of obvious. Um, you know, if we don't know what a man or a woman is, what a husband is supposed to do and be a father, or a wife and a mother, if we can't get that straight... Uh, it doesn't matter really what else we do get straight in some ways, right? Um, you can say that you're a, a Reformed believer, but if you're teaching things that are contrary to Scripture on something as basic as what is proper to a man and what is proper to a woman, and you're, and you're not just teaching something mildly wrong in that area, but just you know, completely off the beaten path, um, then it, you know, you're... you're Calvinism and belief in the sovereignty of God doesn't mean a whole lot uh, because you're interpreting scripture in a very twisted way. I mean, I have more in common with those uh, believers who um, believe a man is a man according to the Bible and a woman is a woman according to the Bible than I do some in Reformed denominations who are, uh, well, drastically departing from that understanding. And so I, I want this study of Bavink's book, Herman Bavink, who lived in the um, mid to late 19th century and the first couple decades of the 20th century. I think he died in 1921. We'll see in a second. But anyway, I, I, I want people to understand that as we study this book written a little bit over 100 years ago, uh, the concerns that Bavink had then uh, are concerns that some of which at least are still here today and have just have, have morphed and become even more grotesque. Uh, and so we're going to connect the teaching there because God's word is true for all time. It doesn't change. We're going to look at Bavink's teaching and look at the good bits in it and maybe places where perhaps we'll disagree. I have not actually pre-read this book. Um, you're going to hear me go through this chapter by chapter as I read it, uh, and so I'm not going to have the benefit of having read through the whole book before we do these, but 
that's okay. It gives you a, a clear impression, gives me a clear impression as we go through what it looks like. But this is going to be, I think, a very exciting study, and I hope you'll follow through. And so I don't want to bore you with any further uh, build-up and introduction. So let's, let's just dive in and see what Bobbing teaches in alignment with the Word of God, and then embrace that, believe that, be in awe of that, praise God for that, and then apply it into our 21st century context and lay of the land, uh, which is going to, of course, be different from the 20th, early 20th century context in which Bavink was writing. So this book by Bavink, it's only about 170, 180 pages, I believe, called The Christian Family, was translated by Nelson D. Klusterman uh, in 2012 for the first time in English, I believe, as far as I understand. And um, so this is not something that's been available in, in the English language for very long. There's only 10 chapters. I'm just covering the introduction today. I've actually not even started reading Bob Inc.'s book yet, just the introduction um, by uh, James Eglinton, which I believe is coming out with sort of like this definitive uh, biography, biography of Bob Inc. Uh, in September of this year, which will shed some light on a lot of things, apparently, including how Bob Inc., uh, maybe seven years or so after writing this book, you know, had some changes in some of his views as we all grow and mature and uh, at times our, our thoughts develop and maybe a few things we said before we would say, hey, you know, I disagree with that now, such as whether women in society should be able to vote or not. Apparently, Bobbing is going to argue that women ought not to. The head of household should vote. But later in life, he changed his mind and his view on that. Um, but we're looking at this to see the good that's in it. That's truth for all time because it's God's word, God's truth, uh, which we can ground in scripture and just simply what we can see in our own observations with the eyes of faith and creation itself. And... Um, then see how far adrift many of our churches are today and, and then what we can do about that. And it's got to start with you, man, husband, father, leading, leading in your home, getting your own life and self in order. And if you're married, leading in love your wife and your children, if you have children, well. And if you're a single man, well, for most of you, pursuing marriage rightly. And knowing the duties in marriage and what you are to do and to be uh, and what a family even is or a household even is, all of that is, uh, well, it's going to be things that we're going to learn here in this study and important, obviously. So the first uh, chapter is called The Origin of the Family. Let me just list the name of the chapters to give you an idea of where we're going. One is The Origin of the Family. Two is The Disruption of the Family. Three, the family among the nations. Four, the family in Israel. Five, the family in the New Testament. Six, the uh, dangers confronting the family. Seven, marriage and family. Eight, family and nurture. Nine, family and society. Ten, the future of the family. So as I said, I just went over the introduction and I have this on Kindle, so I have some highlights from it pulled up here. And Eglinton kind of begins, and again, he's writing in 2012, so even his comments are a little bit dated. He starts out talking about Mark Driscoll 
and how uh, church and its talk about marriage and sex has become kind of more worldly sounding, like, well, if you're a Christian, you get to have the best sex. And so that it's been more focused on just the sex act itself uh, and the quality of your sex life and those type of things. Yes, with a Christian overlay, but really stripping down uh, and forgetting, really, um, any differences, right, between the world and its view of family and what, what a good family order and structure is and what it's all about, what the world thinks, which is selfish and wicked and only narrowly focused on pleasure and what's in it for me, versus what God teaches and God's picture of the family and marriage and uh, being fruitful and multiplying and filling, filling the earth and subduing it to the glory of God as we can now do redeemed in Christ. And so you get a little bit of a talk on that by Eglinton in the introduction. Um, understanding that Bobbing is writing in the early 20th century in Netherlands, uh, writing uh, in Dutch and so on, and, and just a completely different social context than, than what we would, most of us would know and experience today. Um, he says that this is no, Bobbing's book is no 10-step guide nor is it a one-sided approach to marriage where everything is reduced to one's moral or sexual performance. Rather, this is the fruit of a rich Christian mind. It is a Christian theology of marriage and the family. This is a mature handling of the origins of marriage and family life, the effects of sin thereupon, a thoughtful appraisal of various historic Christian approaches to marriage and the family. So kind of seeing throughout Christian history, how Christians have viewed and approached marriage and the family. So seeing that in historical context will be helpful. And an attempt to apply that theology to the Christian family in Bavink's own day. Um, he gives a brief biographical sketch of Bavink, born in 1854. Uh, he ends up going into the ministry and then quickly into the academic spheres um, I'm really not wanting to focus so much on, on uh, Bavink himself, but you can study more of that on your own if you'd like. Uh, but he had a pretty prolific uh, teaching career, uh, working with Abraham Kuyper, another Reformed believer. Uh, these are all in the Dutch neo-Calvinist uh, school of, of thinking and teaching. Um, and again, seeing all of life done to the glory of God, um, all of Christ for all of life. And uh, ultimately, we should all want that, of course, that everything we think and say and do is done to the glory of God. And that includes politics and uh, every avenue, even those which we kind of want to separate or say that there's a complete gray area and Christians completely can differ, uh, differ on. This is about pushing the word of God and its truth into every arena so that we're living faithfully to God everywhere. So we turn now to Bavink's organic, and organic is in quotes here, Bavink's organic worldview. Uh, Eglinton kind of gives us now the theology of Bavink, which is um, helpful. And he says, Bavink's work is essentially one giant effort to develop a worldview centered on the triune God, 
marriage and the family included. And so we're looking at God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one God. He's triune. He is unity and diversity, diversity and unity. Um, he goes on and says, In short, although Bavink believed that God's triunity, that God is three in one, and as such, the supreme model of unity and diversity, says that, that God's triunity was utterly unique and could not be replicated elsewhere, Bavink also believed that everything created by the triune God somehow referred back to this div divine unity in diversity. The universe is, after all, the general revelation of its triune creator. Okay, and so we're going to see right away that general revelation is a revelation of God really and truly, and it reveals God, and God is what? Triune. So creation itself reveals God as he is, not an abstract, you know, deity that's more broad than the God of Scripture, but, but you know, creation itself reveals the one and true, the one and only triune God. And of course, there's all sorts of uh, apologetical methodologies and philosophies that are going to give more or less credence to general revelation, natural revelation, natural theology, and so on. Um, in my bit of reading of Bavink, it would seem that he, you know, certainly recognizes that there is general revelation and it's useful. Uh, many, like Cornelius Van Til, sort of the father of presuppositionalism, uh, would, would point to Bavink as a um, a pioneer or father of their method, but I think, to my understanding, Van Til sort of would develop Bavink further and maybe say Bavink didn't go far enough in some areas and in some ways. Now, I myself I have come to appreciate much of presuppositional thought, um, but I would not identify myself as a presuppositionalist. I've also benefited from O.R.C. Sproul, um, and more of the classical method. And I, I, I don't see <laughs> the antithesis between the two quite so much as, as those of each respective camp may. Um, I've had lots of talks on, with those who hold to both sides of, of this debate. And um, sometimes I think both sides talk past each other and integrate one another more than they should. Although I think there's bad apples, bad examples on both sides. And those, I think, rightly should be um, condemned, but not doing so in such a way that uh, more respectable uh, figures of both camps uh, are thrown away and thrown out as, you know, insane at the same time. So uh, that just gives you an idea of where I'm at on that and, and some of the differences here. And it, again, it centers on, you know, what do you have to be born again? Do you have to be a Christian? Do you have to be regenerate before, you know, nature and creation really means anything to you? You know, is nature just uh, at best a neutral thing or an unintelligible thing to the unbeliever? Or does nature itself um, reveal God such that man is without excuse. And everybody in a broad sense would agree with that uh, on both sides of this, because Romans 1 and such says as much. Uh, but then going from there is where the differences begin. Um, how much can you use natural revelation creation and point to uh, the intricacy of a leaf in its veins and uh, you know, the whole process of a plant growing and photosynthesis or whatever you want to pick 
in nature and say, look, all this complexity and harmony and complexity, you know, is a reflection of the Trinity, unity and diversity, three in oneness, right? Three persons harmonize perfectly as one and only one God. Um, well, the family is a, uh, a harmony, right? A man and woman and children harmonize together, doing each part that God has called them to do for his glory, reflecting God, their maker. Um, so turning back to this introduction here, uh, Eglinton says, so while we can only find the three-in-one formula in God himself, we find pointers to God's triunity everywhere in the vast internal diversity of the nonetheless united universe and the rich tapestry of human culture and society and the nature of human sexual complementarity in the life of the family, whereby different genders, personalities, family traditions, etc., cetera, uh, somehow become a unit and so on. Um, now, Bavink's favorite word when writing of this God-centered unity and diversity is that of the, quote, organic. The world made by the Trinity and the image of that Trinity, the individual human being and collectively the human race, found therein are best described as organisms or as organic in their existence. And then he says in the background to this, it is also interesting to know that Bavink's constant drive to talk of God as the Trinity and the creation as organic stems largely from his reaction to teaching received at the University of Leiden, which was more liberal and progressive, and uh, basically said, well, oh, the doctrine of Trinity is not that important, and so on. So Bavink had a crisis of faith, uh, but came out of that uh, on the other side, still a faithful believer, and, and, and from that experience, that trying experience of those who cast doubt because they looked at the Bible and tried to really, you know, tear it to pieces and critique it as a merely human writing of error and so on, uh, he came out of that more strongly bolstered in his faith and the importance of God as triune. Um, and we as Christians believe we worship the one and only God. There's only one true God. And what distinguishes him from all other so-called gods? Well, it's that he is a trinity. He is triune. And so getting that right, I mean, how critical is that, right? I mean, if we get that wrong, well, then we're going to get virtually everything else wrong to one degree or another if we're consistently working on our erroneous uh you know presuppositions or propositions right uh but if we understand god as triune properly and well and apply that consistently then we're going to understand reality well because all creation is made by god it's it's god's own thoughts and efforts and energy and he makes everything uh, in its original upright glory in keeping with his own glory, his own being, his own goodness, his own triune self. And so creation is a reflection of God himself, and particularly man, as in male and female, man and woman, created in the image of God, as Genesis 1, 26, I think it's 26, says, particularly man is the crown of creation made in the image of God. Right, And so to understand man, and therefore the Christian family, because God created man originally as a family, man and one, woman, right? It was not good for the man to be alone. He gives her Eve, and their call is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Getting man right, getting the family right, can only happen if we understand God aright. And that's what Bob Inc. saw, and he's right.
Intro goes on, from this desire to understand all of life is somehow pointing to the triune God then, various emphases in Bavink's handling of marriage and the family come to the fore. His insistence that the family should function as an organic unit rather than as an arbitrarily connected group of individuals who have few fixed connections to each other makes sense in this light. And by the way, in Bavink's day and that sort of modernist um, time, uh, family structures were breaking down and more individualistic uh, culture and belief and thoughts were emerging. Uh, and of course, I think we've only seen that bloom and, and grow. And it's an ugly bloom today, right? I mean, the family is so um, denigrated and it's all about you. You be individual. You do you. You get all your unique, you know, whatever, uh, tattoos to have self-expression and, you know, dye your hair and uh, have your own walk, have your own theme music, right? Do your own thing. Um, and don't let nobody tell you what to do. Go your own way, right? You don't owe anybody anything. That mentality is, is quite rampant. And even in more, again, uh, conservative, even in more conservative circles, uh, this this process, this way of thinking uh, is prevalent. And it's not that the individual is utterly absorbed, of course. But it is, and Bob Inc. is going to get into this, I'm sure, more and more. You know, the basic building block of society is not the individual, but the family. And again, we know that. Why? Well, we know that because God first made a family, Adam and Eve. But why do we know that? Or maybe a better question is, why did he do that? Well, some of it would be just sheer speculation, but we can rightly say that God made man in his own image, male and female. And so making man in complementary relations, male and female, man and woman, that rightly reflects God, and I think we can understand that reflects something of the unity and diversity of God, the Trinity, the three in oneness of God. If there were just men or just women, um, that would be a problem. And get this if men are just as individuals doing their own thing and women doing their own thing and not coming together as a family and in marriage, well, then you have the same problem. You don't have unity and diversity, you just have well, I guess diversity, which is just chaos, scattered parts. None of it is coming together like puzzle pieces, fitting properly, creating something more beautiful than each individual part. Right? And so that's, that's the problem with going your own way in that sense. But when people come to marriages, uh, to, if they do get married or have some kind of commitment to one another, well... If they're not pushing homosexuality, which obviously is a violation of, of unity and diversity and so on, because it's two men or two women or whatever, uh, even if it's a man and woman coming together, they don't understand how they are to come together, biblically, rightly, truly, really. Right? So coming together is a start, maybe you could say, but doing it as God has revealed, which is a revelation ultimately of how we're to do it reflecting his own greatness and glory, that's that's key. That's critical, right? Uh, I know some have made quite a bit about um, 
you know, Muslim theology and it's, uh, you know, that Unitarianism, just that God is a, a monad. There's just, you know, no diversity in him, no trinity, just one. And you can argue that that's worked itself out in very abusive uh, relationships where the men are just the domineering ones and women are treated as, as basically subhuman because men are seen more like God and the women are just more like creatures in the sense of mere beasts or animals or something to be used. Um, when Christians get their own theology wrong, though, they fall into this also, where men abuse women or women, you know, flip their hair, flip their nose up at, at men and don't obey and listen uh, to the man as, as God's ordained uh, leader in the home and head of the wife. Uh, and, and the husbands, when they abdicate their duties to the wife and authority in the home and to their children, uh, either do it by being slobs and uh, doing nothing and leaving the family, the wife and the children out to dry with no financial support, no leadership, no vision, uh, no backbone, uh, or they're abusive and lead with, with tyranny and an iron fist and, and do more harm than good in their leadership. So anyway, let, let, let's turn back to the introduction here as I'm kind of going off on my own. Uh, Eglinton goes on and says, From this desire, talking about Bavink's desire, to understand all of life is somehow pointing to the triune God, then various emphases in Bavink's handling of marriage and the family come to the fore. His insistence that the family should function as an organic unit rather than as an, rather than as an arbitrarily connected group of individuals who have few fixed connections to each other makes sense in this light. Similarly, his understanding of every family unit as a unique combination of histories, social and biological, as opposed to the idea that the family is a generic product uh, needing no personal space or distinctive living environment, that we're all just sort of like, you know, robotic, you know, plugins or something. Uh, no, we're each uh, unique and individual and each family in its living environment and space and biological male and female differences and just each male has a slightly different, you know, design or temperament or makeup. Each woman the same. All that coming together creates differences and, and each situation is unique and has to be explained um, in the particulars, not just generalities or if you're head in the clouds. Uh, we should be, these things should be understood against this backdrop, right? That, that we're not just looking at the family in the abstract or the generic, but the particular, which each family is unique. It has unique needs and so on. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. But there are, of course, general principles and patterns in Scripture that each family, well, before God is required to obey and make work with their own particular needs in this fallen world. Uh, Bavink's belief that child-rearing should view each child as a unique and complex organism to be known and related to. There's a real relationship here. It's not... Um, Mechanistic is not a machine that can just be controlled. Uh, it's not mechanical programming. Again, this is a similar organic concern. Uh, the organic ideas found throughout Bavink's perspective in the Christian family should all be read as part of Bavink's effort to see the world in the light of its triune creator. For Bavink, an organic view of family and the uh, marriage in the family is a godly one. Now, the next part of his thought, which I've I've heard 
more people talk about than at least in Bob Inc. read a whole lot about directly. Although I, I have read uh, some Bob Inc., so it's just been a while. Um, but this concept and biblical one that grace restores nature. This might be a novel concept to you, like what in the world does that mean? We're, we're about to talk about that. Grace restores nature. Well, what, what is that? God's grace does not introduce new elements into the creation or remove things that were originally present before the fall. Grace does not elevate nature in that sense, as though God's original work of creation was somehow insufficient and still needs improvement. Rather, it restores nature. It takes things back to how they were before sin had its awful way with the creation. Grace returns us to what God and the pre-fall world saw as very good. Now, there's a lot to say about that little snippet from the intro here. Um, first, uh, we need to clarify that, I think. Um, and I don't know exactly which way Pavink and so on goes with that yet, uh, at least in every respect. But um, to say that grace restores nature, but you know, it doesn't add any new elements. It, it, it kind of scrapes away the sin and the defects to get us back to that original pristine glory. In one sense, is absolutely true, but in another sense, it, 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 as always, say we're missing the fact that there's development and that the original creation and nature of Adam and Eve was, was to go from one degree of perfection to another. And I think we have to have a category that allows for that kind of thinking. You know, one degree of glory to another. We go from one degree of perfection to another. Or, or maybe another way to put it is a, a, a stage of perfection. Uh, you know, what, I, what do I mean? What am I saying? Well. Uh, you can have a perfect caterpillar, but then through the process of metamorphosis, it comes out the other side as a perfected or perfect butterfly. And I think in general, we would say that there's a glory to a caterpillar, but there's also a glory to a butterfly. And in many ways, at least the sheer beauty of the butterfly exceeds that of the caterpillar. Uh, that's just kind of a imperfect example. But we are moving now as Christians, united savingly to Jesus Christ, the God-man. And when we go to glory, we go to glory in and through by his own shed blood on the cross. Okay, and that is a greater and more perfect, you know, tent, a more perfect tent, a more perfect way that has been opened for us, right? A more perfect <laughs> uh, passage in relation to God and to glory. And so when we are in glory in heaven and when Christ returns and makes all things new and the heavens and earth are renewed, uh, the, the uh, renewing of all things is a greater glory because of what Christ has done than what Adam and Eve even experienced in the garden. Uh, and so grace is, is perfecting nature, if you want to say, in that sense. But it, but it is right to say that grace is not adding something as if nature was... Uh, God's original creation was imperfect or lacking. Uh, grace does not add new uh, elements into the mix. 
Okay, I hope that helps at least get us thinking down the right train of thought here. Um, and, and it's also important because many would look at heaven and glory as, you know, we're just sitting on clouds playing harps. We may or may not even have or need physical bodies. And we just sit around and sing songs all day. <laughs> and uh, I like singing and I like you know, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and worshiping God, um, that Sabbath day rest and worship is good and sweet, even when it is cursed in this fallen world by, you know, fatigue and difficulty and you've got your young children crying and screaming and you got to stay on them as well. It's a tremendous blessing to come into the house of the Lord and worship together. It's always a blessing. And during this COVID-19, you know, shutdown, missing worship, which I we've been very fortunate not to have by God's goodwill in our situation we've been able to meet for worship still but for those who haven't it's been difficult why because the gathering of the saints God is with his people in a special way there and it's glorious and it's good but there's six other days in the week and God has made us for those as well and when we enter that eschatological you know eternal rest uh, rest is not a cessation from uh, bodily existence and the bodily righteous pleasures that we have. That Christ is raised bodily. He appears to the disciples and others. He eats and he drinks and he goes to heaven and he will not drink, you know, the cup of, of, of wine again until he's seated in glory. And, and uh, you know, heaven is a wedding feast. And so there's still pleasures and delights, bodily pleasures in glory and in heaven. It's not a wicked thing. It's not something we have to cast off or cast away or shed. Grace doesn't like uh, get rid of creation and the body and the physical. It, it, it brings it back and it's going to be fully developed. We go from a garden uh, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to a garden city, a fully developed thing. Why? Because that was God's original intent, right? To fill the earth and subdue it to the glory of God. And in that sense, we can say that grace restores nature right on, right? Because nature already had built into it by God, this development, this growth, this culmination, going from seed to, to full-bloomed flower, right? And so that gives meaning to our work, to our job, to our, to our occupation, to our labor, right? It, it's good and valuable. And so the introduction goes on and talks about that, um, God's creation is in essence good rather than neutral or bad. It's good. While creation is now affected by sin, things like food and drink and marriage, procreation and human culture are not evil in and of themselves. Christianity would not have us focus on our souls whilst, good British spelling, whilst ignoring our bodies or the physical world around us. The grace restores nature idea is at its core an affirmation of nature. It is good. In its original created intent by God, it is good. God can't create evil, right? In the post-fall world, grace does not remove our physicality, nor does it require us to live ascetic lives or disdain marriage. Rather, grace works to restore all of those things to their pre-fall beauty and holiness. And so then a well-ordered family serving God rightly being fruitful and multiplying and working with their hands and worshiping the Lord with gladness and full hearts and full bellies. That 
is a picture of grace restoring nature. That is a picture of the good life with the Lord. Right? And bothering is going to be getting at that and driving at that. And I hope because we're just going through the intro now and not even bothering's own writing yet, just kind of a, a survey of Bavink's thought to help us get some bearings when we go through his book. Uh, this is whetting your appetite to dive in and follow and listen. Bavink's book recognizes that the Christian church has never gone as far as denouncing marriage outright, even though Catholics have, Roman Catholics have denigrated it, certainly at times. Um, Marriage is a good thing, and there's a, a, a distinct uh, purpose and calling uh, for those who are married and the, the less uh, numbers of those who are called to celibacy, both of which can honor the Creator, and I guess he'll develop that in his book some. Uh, let's see. Yeah, this is an important thought. In restoring nature, grace makes its presence known in our midst. I think every word there is important, right? Uh, grace restores nature. And in that process of doing so, right? And we're talking about the grace of God and Jesus Christ, right? Gathering families together again in Christ, in the Lord, being fruitful and multiplying, serving the Lord of gladness. As that's happening, grace is making its presence known in our midst because families are coming together, the hearts of the fathers and children are turned back to one another, loving each other, godly offspring is produced, we're loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself, we're building up then a godly Christian society based on those principles of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our, loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's embodied reality on this earth thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven uh, so it's being made known in our midst and that's that's the in the broad sense that's the good news of the gospel right you could say in the narrow sense the good news of salvation from your sin from the enslaving power of sin and being born again into the kingdom of god and a child of god but then as a child of god what do we do in his kingdom right well we're kind of going back to the beginning or being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it with all that's gone in human history and redemption in Christ as, as our backdrop now. Okay, so we got to understand the family as it is right now. So the family, Bavink handles marriage and family life with a gritty realism. Bavink writes um, that, you know, we are are sinners and that we as sinners, you as a sinner will be the main cross your spouse is called to bear, right? Uh, you're one flesh and you're each sinners. So you got to bear one another well because you're one together, that unity and diversity. In this fallen world, there are no promises that marriage for all its capacity to be beautiful and enriching will be a lifelong series of ever increasing physical delights. In reality, a healthy marriage will probably lean more the intro says, on the Sermon on the Mount, then on the Song of Solomon. That's yeah, a good thing to think about too, right? Uh, it's not always going to be warm and fuzzy romanticism. It's hard work. Just as the Christian life growing in grace and godliness is hard, gritty work, right? Killing sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. God working in us mightily, fighting in us and with us and for us against the world and the flesh and the devil. What Christ had to do to redeem his bride was painful the painful and shameful death on the cross right so heaven now is is not yet or sorry 
marriage now on this earth is not yet in heaven. It's not yet glorified. It's, it's under the sun. Uh, thinking about the language of, of Ecclesiastes and so on. There's still a struggle and a, and a toil and a curse on the earth. And yet we fight through that and we overcome it. And that's the beauty. And that's grace breaking in and restoring nature. And the curse being lifted and rolled back. And that will be culminated fully when Christ returns and makes all things new. And, and all the ransomed church of God will be saved to sin no more. And it will be beautiful. We long and hate and pray that that day would come quickly. But we can't think that, that you know, marriage and, and the Christian family now is a bed of roses and it's just going to be easy. In glory it will be, but we're not in glory yet. And as you hopefully know, Scripture teaches that human marriage between a man and a woman is a picture between Christ and the church, the man representing Christ, the woman, the church. And if you know the Old Testament, the Israelites struggled and fought against God, and he calls them whores and idolaters and adulterers and all this. And in the New Testament, we're often compared to Israel and warned not to be like them, and or else we'll be cast away too. Um, it's difficult. It's painful. It's hard. Um, and God is engaged in this struggle too, sovereignly, perfectly, but really and truly in Christ, working mightily within us. Anyway, so Bothing's insights on marriage provide a helpful corrective to much imbalance in contemporary evangelical thinking on marriage where it's just, you know, your best sex life now, that kind of thing. Uh, what else in this intro? Um, let's see. So he talks a little bit about the French Revolution uh, and how that... Um, well, how Neo-Calvinism, which Bavink was a proponent of and sort of a founding member of, uh, found much of its initial momentum as a rebellion against the influence of the French Revolution across Europe. Um, you've got to understand it, Bavink's writing in that context. The French Revolution was an attempt to cast aside all the old distinctions of class and power. I said this a little bit earlier. Liberty, equality, fraternity. These were the new values, Right. And you can see how in the day, the church today, feminism, egalitarianism could, um, that sort of revolutionary casting off of structure, uh, classes, rigidity, and so on, in the name of liberty and freedom, uh, can, can be parallels to one degree or another, of course. Um, the new de facto deity, reason, was set in direct opposition to divine revelation, right? So reason is throwing off the shackles of divine revelation and set free is going to reach new heights. Well, that's kind of like what Adam did in the garden and Eve listening to Satan and they threw off God and fell into sin and it wasn't quite the freedom they expected. It was a freedom, but it was a freedom to, to now be uh, enslaved to sin, if you will. Um, it talks about a guy... Uh, Quinette, I think is how you'd say his name, uh, revolutionary intellectual. He recognized this essential not um, just to the French Revolution, but to all revolutionary movements, uh, to kind of uh, the, the social interconnectedness between citizens, having that even nationalism broken down, that sense of I am a citizen of a particular country or region or place, I have a belonging, right, a, a home, roots here just kind of making us rootless people who just float on to wherever we want to go that makes you ripe right for revolution 
because your loyalties are gone. Your loyalties are only to yourself. And so anybody who gets in the way of me and my, you know, almighty free will and freedom and individuality, well, then they can just take a hike. And uh, yeah, that's ripe for revolution. Uh, so in order to change an entire society, all the old social connections had to disappear and the individual had to take their place. Uh, let's see what else here. Yeah, Christian institutions, Christian theism, the triune God, right? That unity and diversity. And so a belonging to each other, coming together to form a greater whole and doing it with a structure in place, right? It's got to be unified diversity, not just diversity, not just puzzle pieces, pieces scattered all over the place, but each one coming together to form a greater whole. Uh, a beautiful picture that was an encumbrance to this French Revolution. Um, so Pavnik is motivated to, to combat this in his own Dutch culture, uh, this French fever. His argument was that the family is not an arbitrary collective of individuals who may or may not have much in common by way of belief. Rather, he argues in favor of the family as an organism, right? An organism, a structure, something that comes together, made up of distinct but complementary people who together form the building blocks of society. Okay, this is what we're going to be looking at, Bavink's teaching, as it narrows in on the Christian family. Um, sadly, as Bavink aged, right, this individualism further swept across the nations uh, in the 19-teens and then 1920-21 when he passed away. And uh, this increasing individualism in Western society was something Bavink recognized more and more. And, and so perhaps in some areas he believed he went further than he should, overreacted perhaps. And so backtracked on some of the things perhaps that were said in here. But that's not to say that he denounced all that was in his book by any means. Um, he just realized, you know, when you get excited about something and are really trying to take a stand, you may uh, buff that, buffer that by going further than you really have biblical scriptural warrant to do. One example is apparently he did not believe that women should vote, that only heads of households should vote initially, but he later came to believe that scripture does not necessarily teach on that one way or another. So there's freedom in, uh, of you know, each society can determine what is best structurally for that. Now, others earlier in Christianity have disagreed with that. And, um, you know, we, we today may just take it for granted. Uh, but, of course, you know, originally in the United States, to my understanding, uh, you had to be a landowner to vote. And so who should get to vote and why has, has changed over the years. So just because... It's like commonplace and just nobody even questions men and women. Everybody gets to vote now. It doesn't mean that that's actually good or right. Maybe, may not be. Maybe depending on your reasons. For some reasons it might be fine. For other reasons it might be terrible. Right? So we'll probably talk about that more as we go as well. So... This intro closes with this. It says, In giving us a clear presentation of the Bible's teaching, of the reception thereof in the church's history, and further to that, a model of Christian theology applied to his own context in the area of the Christian family and marriage, Bavink has done us a great service. In that regard, this book is an example 
to follow. And so I hope you're excited to look at this. We've got the lay of the land. Let me just read as a teaser, I guess. <laughs> first couple paragraphs of the first chapter of Bavink. I don't want to leave you without some of Bavink's own words. So chapter one, the origin of the family, the creation of humanity, uh, the creation of humanity of man and of woman in God's image. And this is a great opening line to get your attention. The first sentence he says, the history of the human race begins with a wedding. After God had created heaven and earth in the beginning, he conducted a six-day work project to prepare this creation to be humanity's home. For the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the children of men. That earth, however, had first existed in an unformed condition. It was untamed and empty. Through various separations or differentiations between light and darkness, between the waters below and the waters above the firmament, between land and sea, between day and night, between months and years, God ended its wildness. And by populating land and sea, heaven and earth, with a multitude of living creatures, plants and animals, fish and birds, God filled the creation and made its emptiness vanish. This emptiness was fully overcome, however, only when God then proceeded to create humanity and the human race. For he did not create the earth so that it would remain empty, but he formed it so that people would inhabit the earth. Isaiah 45:18. So he created this humanity after a special consultation. He created humanity according to his own image and likeness. He created humanity immediately as distinct sexes, as man and as woman. And when he had created them, he blessed them and gave them the whole earth as their territory. Within these few features lies embedded everything we need to know about the origin, the essence, and the destiny of humanity. They contain a wisdom that far surpasses the understanding of the erudite. What scripture furnishes us in uh, sorry, what scripture furnishes us in the subsequent course of Revelation, even already in the second chapter of the Bible, is mere expansion and explanation of what is told us crisply and briefly in the first chapter. God first created man, his body coming from the dust of the earth, his soul created by the breath of life breathed in from above. The animals came into existence differently. At the powerful, at the powerful word of God, they were brought forth through and from the earth. The angels also came into existence differently, for they were all created together at once, perfect in their full number. But man, related to both animals and angels, is nevertheless different from them. With the body, man stands in fellowship with the earth. With the spirit, which is from above, man is related to heaven. Both body and spirit are so intimately united within the human person that the human person possesses a unique nature and a unique position among all creatures. It's a pretty money quote right there, huh? In a special sense, a human person is a product of God. A person is his image and likeness, his child and his race. I'll read a little bit longer. The first human being, furthermore, was created immediately as a man, neither neuter nor androgynous, but with a specific sex. Right? Gender blending? No bueno. 
this came to expression in the fact that although he had been placed in the garden and had abundant provision of everything he needed for living, he nevertheless felt lonely. God created him this way. God says both to himself and from himself that it was not good that the man was alone. Immediately at creation, God implanted within the man's soul the yearning for loving someone who would be like him. That yearning was not satisfied by the animals whose essence he perceived, whose kinds he distinguished, and whose names he invented. They were strong and great, noble and magnificent, but they did not share his likeness. The creation of the woman was preceded by the sense of need, which the first man discovered in his own heart amid all his abundance. Even having been created in God's image could not satisfy that need. So the woman is the answer to the question that flowed from the man's heart and across his lips. She is the answer to his prayer, the gift God so richly and lovingly bestowed upon him. Well, I can't resist, even though I'm supposed to save this for the next time. I'll stop there in the reading, and we'll talk about the whole chapter next time. That, that, that last point there, I'll close with this. The creation of the woman was preceded by the sense of need, which the first man discovered in his own heart amid all his abundance, even having been created in God's image, could not satisfy that need. I don't know how many times I've heard good, godly Christian people, men and women, you know, say, well, I just need to find my full and total satisfaction in God, in Jesus, in the Lord. It's like that almost sickening, Jesus is my boyfriend kind of thing that a girl who doesn't, you know, isn't going to date you says to let you down easy, I guess, um, you know, will say, or even guys will say, and it just kind of confuses me. It's always been like, what? You know, well, I, I just need to, you know, love God and know him and be satisfied completely in him. And then, you know, I'll, I'll get married. Well, if you're completely satisfied, don't get married. Right? But the fact of the matter is, you're not going to find in God, man, what you're going to find in a woman. <laughs> right? And so there's this fundamental error of thinking that you can only be satisfied in God by some sort of uh, bodiless, again, floating in the clouds existence. This like high contemplation of God, this mystical experience that just you're at one and at peace with him and just, you know, all you do is study your Bible all day long and you never take any kind of action ever. Uh, and that just fully satisfies you or something like that. Well, God is, there's commands all throughout scripture. Go, you know, stop reading your Bible. Go work, fill the earth, subdue it, start a family, conquer, you know, take, take charge, take control, love one another, go make babies, cling, leave and cleave to your wife. Right? Women, love your husbands, children, obey your parents, right? God has called us to so much. We're not monks, right? So we find satisfaction in the Lord. Adam found satisfaction before the fall in the Lord by ruling over the garden, by naming the animals, right? And even for all that, something was incomplete, if you will, or, or there was a lack of full satisfaction, probably a better way to put it. And that was he did not have a wife, a woman, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, right? Eve. So in Eve, it's not like, okay, God, now I've found true joy. Now that I have a wife, I don't need you anymore. No, he says, thank you, God. He praises God. He comes out in the song, right? It's the bone on my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's praising God for giving him Eve. And so you can find satisfaction in the Lord, right? 
in everything when you do it to the glory of God, including in marital union, especially in that. It's the picture of Christ in the church, for heaven's sake. Right? Literally, for heaven's sake. <laughs> um, when you, uh, I remember reading John Piper had an article, Drinking Orange Juice to the Glory of God. Whatever you eat or drink, do all to, to the glory of God because you should be enjoying God in and through all these things as good gifts from the Lord. And so when I uh, love my wife and enjoy her and my children and my job and my home and my friends and my work, everything, I'm sinning if I'm not delighting in the Lord in and through those things. Right? So God gives you these things as a delight. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore and includes all these things. As she, Eve, woman, is the answer to man's prayer, the gift God so richly and lovingly bestowed upon him. Okay, we'll stop there for now. You got a little taste of Bob Inc. in there. We'll look and develop that more and, and kind of discuss the whole chapter together. You can get this book, by the way, if you want to read along with me on Kindle for like eight bucks. You can just search through it. It's real easy. You can buy the book for like 10 bucks, okay? Hope you've enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to the 10 chapters in Bob Inc. here and going through this together with you. Thanks and God bless.